calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I am Jim Freund, your host. Lightspeed Magazine is edited by John Joseph Adams, and our podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. This week's story is Eris Prattfold, or Adrift in the Cosmos with Lasagna and Mary Steenburgen, by Adam Troy Castro, narrated by Stefan Rutnicki. This story is copyright 2019. Adam Troy Castro made his first non-fiction sale to Spy Magazine in 1987. His 26 books to date include four Spider-Man novels, three novels about his profoundly damaged far-future murder investigator Andrea Court, and six middle-grade novels about the dimension-spanning adventures of young Gustav Gloon. Adam's works have won the Philip K. Dick Award and the Seiyun from Japan, and have been nominated for eight Nebulas, three Stokers, two Hugos, and one World Fantasy Award, and a profusion of international awards. His latest release was the 13-hour audio collection My Wife Hates Time Travel and Other Stories, from Skyboat Media, of course. Adam lives in Florida with his wife Judy and a trio of chaotic paladin cats. So, let's get those cats ready for anything and buckle up. We are going to light speed. Eros Prattfold, or Adrift in the Cosmos with Lasagna and Mary Steenburgen, by Adam Troy Castro. Ellis Nider met his soulmate. The end. That's his story. The rest is annotation. We would almost skip that part were it not for the stone knowledge that any love story not about masturbation does require at least two characters. The object of his affection does deserve something approaching equal time. Ellis was a guy. Some men are guys, other men are dudes. Ellis was a guy. As a child, he was a little guy. As an adult, he was a bigger guy. Like most guys, he gave off the vibe that he knew the universe operated by a certain set of rules, and that he had somehow missed getting online when the powers handed out the books. He was not a bad guy. He was just a guy. He had sandy hair that resisted combing, 
a problem that in the normal march of things would solve itself with the onset of male pattern baldness. He had a jawline that was always gray with incipient beard, no matter how cruelly he applied the razor, eyes that watered if anybody stared at them for too long, and a wistful expression that went along with knowing exactly who his soulmate was and how difficult it was going to be to arrange the meeting. You would like Ellis. You would likely be attracted to him as potential friend, if not as potential mate. Ellis worked in a home supplies superstore. His specialty was cabinetry. He knew everything there was to know about cabinetry. This was not the area of expertise he would have chosen for himself as a child. He wanted to be an astronaut, in no small part because he knew about his soulmate even then. But cabinetry was what he did to keep body and soul together, a part of his life that amounted to the hours he spent waiting for them to be over so he could go on to the rest of his existence, which, alas, also consisted of waiting. He had an Xbox. He blasted zombies. Sometimes he ordered pizza, a weekly habit that contributed to the slight bulge in his midsection. He wasn't fat, but he did not have washboard abs either. This is one of the factors that contributed to him being a guy. He liked sci-fi. He didn't call it science fiction, but sci-fi. Again, this is of necessary interest in light of the secret connection he had to his soulmate. It would be critical to his eventual fate that he was a reader, one of the last among a dying breed, and that he preferred escapism to finely wrought tales of angst and character, essentially anything where the hero roared rips, anything where the guy at the center of the action got to battle vast waves of alien vermin armed with nothing but determination and a sharp sword. His ideal of fiction was anything that made him cry, Yee-haw! This was also critical to his fate, as if he hadn't encountered a certain model, he wouldn't have ever had the opportunity to bond with the soul the cosmos had designated as forever entwined with his, the one he ached for and was eager to meet from the very moment he was aware of himself as more than an infantile ball of need wailing for mother's milk. Before he could speak, his spirit had pierced the distance, separating him from the one being whose spirit resonated most with his, whose heart beat in time with his. And therein lay the problem. His soulmate could have been a green-eyed, red-haired Irish girl named Caitlin, actually fresh from the island with an accent to match, also with a ready smile and an infectious laugh, who loved dogs, classical music, and long walks in the woods, who played the guitar often but not well, who liked to sing but had no illusions of ever making a professional go of it, who just liked to warble on long car rides and in the shower because it made her feel good, who preferred T-shirts to blouses but could rock a sequined gown like nobody's business, who ate waffles every Sunday morning. His soulmate could have been a brown-eyed, shaven-headed black guy named Raphael, born in Encino, who smiled little because he had a habit of brooding, but could occasionally light up the room with his blinding white teeth, who absolutely loathed dogs, but who maintained seawater aquariums, who liked hip-hop and loathed the woods, but loved the beach, who had an odd passion for medieval German history, and whose preferred form of wit was the pun, whipcord thin, the kind of guy made to wear three-piece suits, who wore a jaunty trilby, who never ate breakfast, but was a bit of a bore on the subject of sushi and on the very long weekend he had spent trapped in Tulsa. 
Ellis's soulmate could have been anyone among billions of others. Hell, in the absence of a soulmate, a good match, a person who could have been his best friend, a compatible sexual partner, a considerate roommate, a contributor to the family coffers, anybody not a total asshole would have been doable in multiple senses of the word. And Ellis tried. Oh, he tried. He tried with Caitlin, and it was lovely. But there were times when his mind was on the unattainable other soul he knew, and she saw it, and after a few months there inevitably came the day when he went in for a dutiful kiss and she placed both her delicate palms on her chest and looked up at him with an affection millions of men would have crawled across shattered glass for and said, We need to talk. Clearly, I'm not the one. He tried with Raphael, and it too was lovely. But again, there were times when his heart beat in time with that other unavailable to him. And there came the day when Raphael peered at him from across their king-sized bed and said, You know what? This ain't working. He tried with others, including a couple of Heathers and a Lucas, and for a while with a Minerva, an actual Minerva who had begun life as Menachem and who loved him for a while from across the greatest age gap of his sexual life, 37 years. Minerva was gray but lively, and for the longest time, the very longest time, she was not just lover but spiritual and erotic teacher, imparting a knowledge of life and the act that made Ellis a terrific short-term lover, but failed to render him desirable as life partner. More than one person said to him, Who the hell are you waiting for anyway? And that was the thing. Ellis knew. He just thought it was impossible and as crazy as you probably would. First of the problems was that his soulmate was dead and had, in fact, been dead for a long time. Familiarity with romantic fantasies of various sorts have accustomed you to the premise that this can be overcome. In the pop culture realm you inhabit, people are forever finding their soulmates in eras far removed from their own. You may remember Claire Randall or Richard Collier or Kyle Reese or James T. Kirk, all of whom met their dearest love at times removed from their own. Then there was Doc Brown and a version of H.G. Wells, both of whom rode their respective time machines to lasting relationships with women played by Mary Steenburgen. Honestly, if you believe the advertising, a hottie from the Napoleonic era isn't all that prohibitive a meetup. That Ellis's soulmate had been dead of old age for much longer, approximately 1,700 years, would not have presented much of a problem by this precedent. Nor do you expect much of a problem with the announcement that the soulmate in question was a non-human living on an alien world. Again, you have seen guys making it with blue women and green women, women making it with furry guys and robot guys, and lots and lots and lots of vampires. It happens. Love is love, right? Here we introduce Ellis's soulmate. At this point, we find ourselves obliged to introduce new pronouns. The creature in question had evolved in an entirely different ecosystem, and the dance of time had created a trio of gender that did not line up with our classical two or any existing combination or variation, recognized or not. For reference, we will use Z as the article and Zer as the possessive. Zer name was unpronounceable by us, as the language their species had developed reflected an entirely different vocal apparatus 
and frequent clouds of purple pheromone. Rather than make up a fanciful name to go with all that alienness, like Arayalasi or Glar or Bathanibe or Blgluvzbzbf, we take pity and insert a name that Z would find as hard to fathom as we find some of those. Because human gender is irrelevant, we could easily pick a male name, a female name, or a neutral name, but we will pick the name that best conjures their personality, Myrna. Myrna obeyed no biological model we know, but description is no insoluble problem. Z was invertebrate, roughly oblong in shape, and semi-liquid, a word that sounds gross until you reflect that the same is true of you and me. Z is best pictured as a stack of rubbery, flexible mats containing all their necessary organs and separated by a matching series of more liquid layers retaining heat that constantly oozed out around the edges. The most accessible metaphor in your experience is probably lasagna. Like the rest of Xur's species, Myrna was capable of locomotion, and Z oozed about a planetary surface thick with the primordial juice, ingesting it at one end and excreting it at the other. Z was charming and witty, and a historian devoted to the study of an ancient war fought over an issue that would require an entire shelf of text to explain, of which Z was Zerkine's most renowned scholar. Z was considered a catch, and Z had a series of assignations with Zeron equivalents of Caitlin and Raphael, both separately and together, and with colonies of melded creatures we would have trouble positing as conglomerations of Phil's and Amy's and Vito's and Yukio's. You need to know that if you did the heroic labor necessary to translate everything Z did into human metaphor, Z would be the shy but dazzling creature nursing a white wine beside the fern, allowing the party to come to Zer. Z had no personal need to do any chasing. Everybody wondered why Z hadn't settled down. The answer was that from the moment Z first congealed from the elements that gave Zer kind form, Z knew that Zer heart, well, not actually Zer heart because Z didn't have one, but an organ of equivalent importance, belonged to a distant being of unaccountable strangeness named Ellis Nider, who specialized in an arcane skill involving artifacts known as cabinets. It was an uncanny connection, one that sometimes left Myrna doubting Zer's sanity, but it could not be denied. Destiny could not be denied. This Ellis, whatever he was, wherever he was, whatever nature of world had spawned him, was Zer's soulmate, and though Z made every conscientious effort to live within the dictates of Zer biosphere, it was impossible to form any lasting relationships for as long as he remained Zer destiny. Z pined over him, all the thirty snumpox of Zer life, and not in considerable period of time among Zer kind. Z felt the tenor of his being, tasted his lust for life, his aching vulnerability, the million and a half ways his totality resonated with Zer's. Z knew that it could never be, that he lived, actually would live, as he was many years from being born, on a planet shocking in its conditions, infested by a race stunning in its venality and short-sightedness, in whose company he was trapped. Z ached to join him, or to have him join Zer, though common sense counseled that this was impossible. Z wept, 
or performed the equivalent of weeping, which is more we're not going to go into, if only, if only, allowing for the many years it took the light of Myrna's world to shine in the night sky above the apartment where Ellis had spent the latest in a long series of evenings alone, after yet another paramour had fled to parts unknown, after sadly telling him that permanence was not in their shared future, Ellis thought these same words with what was as close as the universe allowed for synchronicity. He stood in his apartment, so recently vacated by his last consolation prize of a lover. He gazed upon the art prints on the walls and the oversized flat screen on which he and that individual already fading in his memory watched their last date night movie, Love Actually. The tears would not come, but he did feel the familiar yawning void in his heart, and he thought of the being he did not personally think of as Myrna. He knew that Z was alien, and he knew how crazy his mother would get if he ever explained to that poor fluttery woman who kept hinting about grandchildren that this was the match every atom of his being insisted on holding out for. He wondered what Z was doing. And the answer, of course, was that on Xur world so many generations had passed that all Xur substance had been passed on to the other living things in Xur own planet's cycle of life. Allowing true synchronicity, Z was in a million different places, being eaten, metabolized, breathed in, exhaled, excreted, or otherwise churned the way we are all fated to be once our own substance returns to the soil. It may be true that Zur own soul was being similarly recycled, its bits and pieces distributed among the other beings of Zur world, but these are philosophical matters we need not go into now. Forget the actual gulf of time. Allow the signal passed between two beating hearts, or between one heart and whatever Z had, to stand in simultaneity. At what passed for this moment, no two lovers had ever yearned more desperately for their very first meeting. Ellis had no reason to believe that tonight was any more fateful than any other night, nor was there anybody present functioning as the equivalent of the officiant of a Passover Seder to explain exactly why. He just thought his poor excuse for a life had been shattered to empty pieces again, and so he stormed about for a bit, fulminating, cursing his fate, scaring the cat, drowning his sorrows in a belt, and after a timeless time spent performing the various other manifestations of his pity for himself, indeed a period that might have lasted days, did what we all do in such a circumstance and began to move on. He sighed and reached for another consolation, which at this fateful moment was a very old and battered science fiction novel that he had bought years earlier, but that he had always neglected in favor of more contemporary works. It happened to be the first to fall within the reach of his grasping hand at this instant when, again allowing for the chronological lag, Myrna was just as vehemently yearning for him. Because he picked up that one specific book, he, in very short order, read Edgar Rice Burroughs's rationale for John Carter's first trip to Mars. As I stood thus meditating, I turned my gaze from the landscape to the heavens, where the myriad stars formed a gorgeous and fitting canopy for the wonders of the earthly scene. My attention was quickly riveted by a large red star close to the distant horizon. 
As I gazed upon it, I felt a spell of overpowering fascination. It was Mars, the god of war, and for me, the fighting man, it had always held the power of irresistible enchantment. As I gazed at it on that far-gone night, it seemed to call across the unthinkable void to lure me to it, to draw me as the lodestone attracts a particle of iron. And with that, the fictional gentleman from Virginia conveniently found himself on Mars, where he was to meet his soulmate, the lovely Deja Thoris. Perhaps on any other night, Ellis would have retained too much grounding in the concrete world of his everyday existence to make the leap of faith. But right now he was bereft. Right now there was nothing to his four walls and Ikea furnishings to hold him. Right now he could feel Zer, the being who would complete him, calling. Moving like a man in a dream, he left his apartment and descended the stairs and stood in the street outside, looking up at a sky that was for this moment brilliant in its clarity and its abundance of starlight. One bright light among all the thousands seemed to him to pulse with an urgency that dwarfed all its brethren, and this one he addressed with a degree of focus he had never known, through which he sensed the creature who was the focus of all his longing addressing their own stars with just as much fervency. The universe bent itself to their shared will. He was transported out of his clothing, which remained on the pavement, the only forensic evidence in a mystery that the world of his birth would never solve. Those who knew him, his family and friends and co-workers, and the lovers who had drifted away in sadness, would spend the rest of their lives wondering what had happened to good old Ellis, that poor guy who really did deserve happiness, even if he never had seemed to figure out what he wanted. Ellis felt nothing but an interval of dizzying speed, stars going by so quickly that he perceived them as Doppler-shifted streaks. And then he found himself standing on a moist, glistening crag in an ill-smelling murk, in a literally unearthly cold beneath stars that for all his knowledge of astronomy could have been those of Rio or Shanghai or Cleveland. It was cold enough for his breath to emerge as vapor, which made the disappearance of his clothing especially unfortunate. Goosebumps erupted. But this was not just a function of the cold. He could sense Zer nearby, and more importantly, could sense Zer registering him, and through their connection felt a boundless joy that was echoed by his own. Whatever the differences in their species, whatever the differences in their cultures, this was a moment that was always meant to happen, and that meant their differences would be met and overcome. The two hearts, or again his heart and whatever it was Z had, finally joined in one. The world seemed empty. In one direction there was nothing but an endless plain, marked here and there with greasy streaks that glistened in the starlight. In the other was a wall so high that it scraped the very heavens, so wide that there was no possibility of walking around it, so featureless that there was no possibility of even an experienced free climber, which he was not, to scale it. Wherever Z was, and he could sense that Z was near, aware of his proximity, but as unable to spot him as he was to spot Zer, it seemed that the task of crossing this last divide 
would need to be Zer's. He had no doubt that Z would. This was Zer world. If there was a gap in that towering edifice, Z was the one who'd know where it was. And then the entire wall rolled forward, making the earth, or whatever you call the surface of a planet that was not earth, shake. He fell to his knees, saw the clearly biological ways in which the layers of flesh undulated, perceived the yawing wave action in the more liquid layers that separated them, and understood for the very first time that the many barriers between himself and his one true love had never been limited to time and space and biology. All of those could have been overcome. More critical was that which was about to crush him in a manner more literal than the repeated crushings his heart had endured over the years. Given half a chance, their love could have transcended time and space and biology. It had never stood a chance of surviving the one difference that turned out to be way more critical than any of those. Scale. For Ellis, it was like being run over by a horizontal avalanche. He was flattened, liquefied, rendered a stain that, because of the vagaries of his body chemistry's interaction with that of this alien place, would never rub off. He ended his existence as Zertatou. So yes, for him, that was the story, the one we began with. Ellis met his soulmate, the end. An object lesson in holding out for what's perfect, in defiance of what probably would have been perfectly nice. For Myrna, it went a little differently. Upon reducing him to a thin, crunchy paste, Z perceived his sudden absence, but not the nature of his departure. And though Z was distraught for a while, adjusted. Within four turnings, Z was part of a triad. It was for Zer a union short on passion, but high on practicality. And there were nights when the mating was quite nice, where Z managed to get all the way to what Zerkind considered climax without once resorting to fantasies of Zer-alien Ellis or forlorn conjectures over what had ever happened to him. It was a happy ending, or at least a contented one, and we can take comfort in the awareness that they had both gotten what they always wanted, even though he was the only one who had even a heartbeat to be fully aware of it. Z, on the other hand, would always think of him as the one who got away, much as we happen to know that he really didn't. Welcome back. You have been listening to Stefan Rudnicki reading Eris Prattfold, or Adrift in the Cosmos with Lasagna and Mary Steenburgen, by Adam Troy Castro. We hope you enjoyed it. If so, please help spread the word by leaving a review or rating at iTunes or the social media venue of your choice. Our editor is John Joseph Adams, and this podcast is copyright 2019 by Lightspeed Magazine. As a listener to this podcast, you know that we publish it and most of the rest of our content for free online. If you don't already support our Hugo Award-winning journal, please consider checking out our many options, including ebook subscriptions and recurring patronage via Patreon at lightspeedmagazine.com support. This month's sponsor is Lethe Press. 
Skyboat Media, the most respected independent audio production team on the West Coast, produces the stories for this podcast. They are headed by the Audi and Grammy Award-winning narrators Stefan Rubnicki and Gabrielle DeCure. Be sure to check out their website at skyboatmedia.com. Post-production was by yours truly. Our music and sound logos were composed and performed by Jack Kincaid. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly, but don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.